Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney on the newest podcast from Idle Thumbs. This weekend, we're taking a cue from a reader. Our main topic is on something very dear to our hearts as game reviewers, critical consensus. But first, we're going to Mars. Maybe. That is, if everybody doesn't totally die on the way there. Rob, I hear you've been playing a lot of Tharsis lately. Yeah, I ended up uh, reviewing the game for IGN, and it's a game that sort of snuck up on me until suddenly everybody was talking about it. <laughs> uh, and it's it, it's kind of an odd, it's an odd little game. It, it's from Choice Provisions, and it's, uh, I guess it's it's kind of like FTL meets Yahtzee. Yeah. Uh, you, you're on this, <laughs> you're on this space voyage from hell. Uh, where everything is is going wrong, you're like a, you're, you're like aboard this you're aboard the ship that's falling apart, uh, sort of like Herbie the Love Bug, <laughs> um, and he keeps sort of having to uh, hold it together with bailing wire. Herbie the Space Bug, yeah, like yeah. Uh, except it's a lot less cute. But we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> uh, and the way you, you the so you have got all these modules aboard the ship that that keep failing. And uh, at the start of every turn, more modules fail, and you have a choice of repairing them, or or actually just kind of ignoring the problem and uh, doing some other stuff. But uh, you're you're limited to what you can do by uh, your crew members. Uh, you you only have four crew members to start with, uh, and each of those crew members has a dice pool, and the dice pool is sort of how they resolve the various uh, challenges and problems that crop up on the ship, and and so it's this really demanding game of of resource allocation it requires a lot of uh you know advanced planning uh thinking about what could happen and and preparing for that uh it, it definitely ties into as you play the game you start to uh, learn to anticipate certain events and you know what uh, special abilities you'll be able to activate at certain points. Uh, so there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways you can start to figure out the system, but especially in the early stages uh this is a game where, uh, you just you you die a lot uh, and and horribly and often very quickly, and it's it's a it's a really weird thing because for me I I really felt like the well was kind of poisoned for me uh, with sure. this game probably in the in the opening hours I spent with it as I was as I was sort of learning how it worked uh, because at first you know I was just kind of chain dying. And I'd play a couple turns, and then my ship would explode because I would be overwhelmed by problems. Yeah. And then I started to figure out, like, better ways to allocate my limited resources and, and better ways to plan on my turn, turns. And I started seeing better results. But still, uh, there were times when things would be going really well. And I was like, okay, I think, I think I'm finally getting this game. And then a new turn would start. A bunch of new events would pop up that were basically like unfixable uh there it was it had this completely like uh okay screw you uh you you thought you were doing well but now in this one turn uh we're going to deal enough damage to your ship to destroy it in one go and you can't repair these problems because uh every time you roll your dice to try to uh, repair them uh, on rolls of like four, five, or six, for instance, uh, your crew members will be will be hurt uh, and, and possibly die. Uh, so good luck trying to trying to get the rolls you need when all the high numbers uh, basically end in disaster. And so it was. It's it's one of those things where like I started to see. 
how the game worked. At no point did I feel necessarily like it was rigged, right? Like, I understood, sure. like, the, how the systems, the systems were sort of behaving honestly, uh, if you allow for, for the randomness, uh, sort of built into the game. And yet, it would be a stretch for me to, it didn't feel fair, right? Even if, even if, like, the, the roles weren't rigged, even if the events that were happening, uh, weren't rigged, uh, overall, I just felt like time and again, the rug was being yanked out from under me. And I think one problem, uh, one reason I felt this way is a lot of times, uh, by the time you start to realize you're cornered, you're actually <laughs> sufficiently far removed from the decisions that could have averted disaster. Sure. That yeah. you, it's completely opaque as to how you could have averted, uh, whatever this new crisis is that, that ultimately kills you. Uh, so yeah, so I, I ultimately like really, really didn't like the game and, and gave it a, a, a pretty, a pretty negative review on IGN. Uh, and it was, it was weird because I, like on the one hand, I, I did feel, and I was talking about this, uh, before I submitted it, uh, to my editor, I felt kind of like just if the game had not been so like brutally sadistically tuned, uh, <laughs> at the default difficulty level, um, I would have had more fun with it. Uh, but you know, after playing like a dozen games in a row and not getting, you know, more than halfway to Mars, I started to really, really resent the ever living hell out of this game. And, and then I started getting <laughs> good at it. But by that point, I just didn't care. Right. Like sure. I started like it was one of those things you start. It's it's a game where you start to see how it works. But at that point. Who gives a damn? Because it's not actually fun, right? Like, uh, yeah, okay. So there's a system here that I can optimize and 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 learn how to really utilize. I no longer want to learn how to play your game because I think the process of learning it has just become this really, uh, you know, kind of shitty, miserable uh, <laughs> experience. And I knew the moment I published it, you know, in this day and age, especially, <laughs> yeah. there's going to be people uh, who are like. Oh no, like you can totally win this game every time if you just play it right. Like you always know someone's going to figure out the the exploits to sort of get through game perfectly. And uh you know, I, I sort of braced myself for that. And you know, sure enough, like a, a developer uh, of the game sort of got in touch with me on Twitter and he's he's pretty classy about it. Uh but at the same time his 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 fundamental response was, "Yeah, we need to get better at at, at teaching people how to play the game." Hmm. And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I guess that's that's one takeaway that you could <laughs> that that you, that you could grab from that criticism. Uh but I think the the issue is sometimes your game isn't worth getting uh based sure. on the the, sure. the early the early hours with it and that's that's kind of where I ended up with Tharsis. It's this weird thing where like I admire sort of the way it's constructed and um how intricate uh the decision making can be and at the same time I think if I invested the time to become a master of Tharsis, I would feel like I absolutely wasted every minute of that, <laughs> of that time. <laughs> that's yeah, that's a really difficult thing. Like that's a really tough trick to sort of master. I almost when you were first describing this to me, I was almost picturing sort of, you know, the approaches that games take towards teaching their players how to play them and, you know, the other sort of notoriously difficult games that everybody seems to love, the Souls games almost feel like sort of a you know, the 80s movie version of a, of a 
karate sensei sort of teaching very, you know, very brutally difficult, but always sort of showing the student the way versus the schoolyard bully just sort of mashing your face in the in the mud <laughs> until you you get it. It's difference of approach, but it sounds like even even if you did sort of have the the Zen karate master, it still would have been just not not a winner for you, well, it it's, seems. It's an interesting it's a weird thing, right? Because like the only reason I didn't really get into the Souls games is because <laughs> I just didn't have time to get good at them, right? Like I was like I I spent a day with with uh with, with Demon Souls <laughs> and I had a lot of fun with it, but then I realized I just spent a day getting like 3 quarters of the way the first through through the first level. And I was like, yeah, yeah that doesn't that doesn't fit with <laughs> with my life or who I am. Uh yeah. but it didn't it didn't fill me with the same it, it could be frustrating. But it wasn't quite as discouraging, and I think it, part of it is maybe it, it does sort of feel like the Souls games are that, you know, <laughs> that, that ultimately good-hearted sensei. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> you know, your hands are broken and bruised and bleeding, but you, you're stronger and you're better and you've, you've learned how to do the Yeah, do you the learned moves. something. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, and like... With Tharsis, it, it kind of felt like, you know, you can almost hear the game doing a little, like, Nelson laugh from The Simpsons, right? Where it's like, <laughs> totally. you, you still don't get it, do you? <laughs> uh, and it's like, no, I, I, I guess I don't. I guess you got me again. Uh, and I wonder also how much of that is also just a function of, um, you know, when a system is so governed by dice and that particular flavor of randomness, whether that has a, a, a different psychological effect. Yeah. I think there's a lot to that. And I actually want to sort of bridge this, this discussion about, you know, your review and, and sort of your feelings on Tharsis versus the critical consensus on Tharsis, uh, to our main topic today, which is going to be on critical consensus as a whole. And this came to us, uh, in the form of a letter. See, we get the best letters from our readers. This is from Liam, and I'm going to read the letter and then we're going to probably have, uh, quite a bit of a, a hopefully a meaty discussion on this. Um, so. Liam says, hey, Rob and Danielle, loving the show so far. You've really managed to capture what I love about Idle Thumbs, classic, uh, with a, you know, capital on C in the classic, while injecting something new into it. Last week, Rob cited the Kane and Lynch series as games that are somewhat unfairly uh, slated, despite containing some interesting ideas. I actually think about Kane and Lynch 2 a lot. I picked it up a week after release, once I'd read a 9 out of 10 review of the game in a magazine. After playing the thing, I decided to never again read said magazine, since it, it had made me drop a considerable amount of money on a significantly flawed game. But in the many years since, I've come to soften my view of the game. I like the idea of a game that asks you to care about and project upon completely reprehensible characters. And I like the idea of a game with found footage, shaky cam aesthetic, even though it was a little nauseating in practice. I also think the game's multiplayer mode, which asked players to work as part of a temperamental, uneasy alliance of bank robbers, was a really neat idea. Since the game is now regarded as, quote, objectively bad by popular critical consensus, there's a slim chance of any of the, uh, that any of these ideas will be seen again, for fear of repeating the game's mistakes. I guess my question is, do you think that the idea of critical consensus, i.e. When, when we think a game is inherently good slash bad, can limit the progression and expansion of interesting ideas contained within flawed games? Sorry for the long email. If you discussed this at great length previous episode, I'm still catching up. No, Liam, we had not. And this was 
perfect, perfect jump, uh, perfect jumping off point for us this week. Wow. Um, <laughs> my initial take is hell yes. I think critical consensus, uh, can, can hold back games and keep a lot of, you know, smaller games that are, you know, flawed, but interesting from ever having the impact that they maybe would have if, uh, perhaps somebody evangelized it properly or, well, you know, I'm saying properly as if there's only one way to do this, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Rob, what's your take on this? Yeah, actually, this this conversation touches on a lot of my insecurities uh, because this is something that's been that I find myself thinking about a lot as I sort of look back on uh, reviews I've done and then juxtapose like where I landed with a lot of these games mm. versus the memories I, I've taken away from them. Right, and I think I I may have brought this up on a previous show, but a lot of times now it's the games that were a little bit broken, a little bit wonky, uh, that, that somehow end up staying with me, uh, in, in a lot of ways. And a lot of the games I give, uh, you know, strong, uh, you know, fans of the genre type reviews, like, you know, your, your classic, <laughs> like, you know, something like not quite, not quite a truly great game, but a lot of those, you know, strong endorsements, uh, a lot of those games I end up once they're put away, they just completely slip from my memory. And, um, yeah, you know, the thing is I can, the, the Kane and Lynch example is useful because I actually can sort of, I can sort of guess how I would have reviewed that. Like <laughs> sure. I liked, I liked those games a lot. Um, but I think the way a lot of game reviews are handled at games websites, um, you actually, they, they, they sort of drive a lot of scores toward the middle of the road and they really don't allow you to celebrate what's, what's truly interesting. Cause a lot of like review score guides like kind of force you to sort of ding a game for, for not checking certain boxes. And that's a, uh, you know, that's a, that's a difficult, difficult problem to, to solve. Um, yeah. but. You know, like, so, so Kane and Lynch, I think Kane and Lynch one and two actually are, are both very different and, and very interesting games. Uh, and, and they did get, they did get panned. Uh, Kane and Lynch one is, is sort of remembered for it, for its role in Gerstman Gate. Oh, yes. Uh, at, 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 uh, GameSpot, where he panned this game and then ended up sort of getting fired. Uh, and it was, it was widely, it, it was widely believed, uh, that, it was absolutely retaliation for the fact that he just sort of taken a dump all over a game with a huge marketing budget behind it. Uh, and, and that it had, uh, yeah, and that specifically on the website that they had had a marketing campaign on GameSpot at the time. But that was a part of the whole drama-rama around that, for sure. Right. But then there was also this sort of rush, I think, to sort of... Um, validate his review of Kane Lynch, right? Like he called it like he saw it. He told the, sh you know, he gave the yep. shitty game what for, uh, and you know, that it, you know, it, it absolutely had it coming. And when I finally got around to playing it a few years later, uh, it was a total bargain bin pickup. Uh, I actually found it way, way more interesting than a bunch of the other quote unquote, like objectively good shooters that had come out yeah. before or since. And the thing about Kane Lynch was, what people didn't like was the fact that the characters were legitimately awful. Uh, your main, your main character, uh, Kane, 
is this guy who he, he, he is profoundly evil. Uh, and the only sort of redeeming feature, the only real warmth he has is, is toward his family. And naturally, because of the life he's led, uh, his family ends up getting abducted uh, at the start of the game. And everything he does to try to fix it uh, is just more and more reprehensible. And the blowback and unintended consequences from those decisions gets worse and worse and worse. So it's like this game where when you're playing it, you're doing unbelievably heinous shit, like mowing down tons of cops, bystanders, whatever. And then in between missions... Whatever you were doing that for, whatever your cause was, kind of, you know, turns to crap in your hands, right? And that's, and that's sort of Kane and Lynch. But what was interesting there is that's kind of what, that's, that's kind of the world a, a shooter protagonist deserves. Absolutely. Uh, and it was yeah. so well executed. But people didn't like that. It, it, people didn't like the fact that the characters, and their, their, their sort of moral universe, uh, was so heavily compromised. Kane Lynch 2 now is, I think, uh, even more depressing example in some ways. Fascinating aesthetic. The entire thing has this, it, yeah, it looks like it's being shot from a crappy cell phone camera <laughs> while you and your buddy are running around, uh, I want to say it's, it's, it's Shanghai. Yeah, um, I think it is. Yeah, getting in, in massive gun battles. Uh, so it's, it's, it, it really echoes, um, a lot of like later Michael Mann movies. Um, Tons of digital noise, artifacting, and stuff like that. But what I remember people slamming the game uh, for over and over again was the fact that the shooting didn't feel good. It didn't feel like a good shooter. What's with these controls? And the reason the shooting didn't feel good is because it was cra- it was crazily imprecise. Because the weapons you guys, first of all, you guys aren't actually super soldiers. Um, Lynch is is, is kind of just. <laughs> just kind of a criminal uh, who keeps getting caught up in this stuff. But the other thing is, you're using crap weapons. You're using like you know submachine guns uh, and machine pistols in long range engagements, and your your shots are going everywhere. Civilians are getting killed. Windows are getting blown out. And it kind of feels. You remember in 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 season one of The Wire, there's that there's that one gun <laughs> battle where like a bunch of guys get in the shootout and nobody hits anyone except for yep. a stray bullet that kills a kid. Yep. <laughs> Kane and Lynch is a game about assholes getting in gunfights with the same <laughs> level of incompetence and much better hardware. And actually, it becomes a really fascinating game. But again and again, you saw, well, it didn't it didn't check the good shooter box, so I guess it's crap. Yeah, that's that's really depressing. And I and I know I've been guilty of this as well at times, you know, thinking like, well, you know, especially if I didn't uh this is this is not me admitting anything about previous work in any particular place, but you know, if I felt as if I, you know, oh, I don't have the strongest opinion about this, but you know, this checks all those boxes. Okay, yeah, I guess it's it's pretty good. I I, I feel like I've done that before, and I feel kind of terrible about it because I feel like I've just kind of contributed to this this whole idea. And and, and oh, sorry, go ahead, Rob. No, but uh, but but I ask you though, like at a lot of these places, didn't you also have a review guide that sort of encouraged you to to look for those boxes to check? Yeah, to to a lot of degrees. Yeah, absolutely. It just feels like okay, you got to you got to cover all the bases. And I think this is really obviously sort of vestiges of video game journalism being sort of in tech journalism's little baby brother. You know, uh, uh, graphics get this score, gameplay gets this score. That was always the best part. You know, when fun factor <laughs> replayability, <and laughs> replayability. You know, got a particular score. And some places still do that. You know, some places still definitely do that. They score by certain areas like that and it, and it, it kind of sucks you know in terms of actually 
wanting to do criticism, you know, wanting to do sort of the work of criticism for for having these very sort of just consumer product guidelines to, to guide you on your way. And I think there's still a lot of that mentality, even in places that don't explicitly tell you to, you know, judge a, according to these criteria. I, I always, when I was writing a review and I didn't, even if I didn't have to do those things, it, it kind of felt like, well, you got to mention X, Y, and Z or else, you know, mm-hmm. well, you, she didn't talk about the graphics. You know, she didn't talk about the fun factor. What, you know, how will we know how to judge this review if there's no talk of fun factor? Um, it's very, very, uh, very, uh, funny to me that that's sort of like the history of all of this. There's, there's one studio that I wanted to point out. And actually they had a game out this week, a studio that I, I really love because they continually make games that don't get a ton of, of really positive critical buzz, but they keep making interesting, weird games that I sort of love. Uh, now they, they were just, it's Ace Team and they just brought out Deadly Tower of Monsters this week. And I don't have much to say about, uh, about that particular game because I haven't played it yet. Uh, it's just in thinking about this discussion, I've definitely thought about some of their previous games. They made a game a few years ago called Rock of Ages, which is this wacky sort of, um, it was sort of partially bowling, partially uh, obstacle course navigation, and partially tower defense. Um with four different art styles, there was sort of a Rococo art style. There was sort of a, you know, ancient Greek urn aesthetic. And, and there were two others just so all over the place with so many bonkers, crazy ideas. There was a boss battle in that game where you play as a, a giant rock with a, a face on it, with like the face of a person. And you had to attack, a, a you know, a, a, one of Leonardo's statues, like a 3D statue that you had to just continually hit until it, it fell apart. It just... All sorts of stuff all so over the place. So it was an art vandalism game? Not even. It, it was. It, it's really difficult to... You played as this rock and you would go through these obstacle courses and there were all these um, sort of tower defense elements okay. to help you get through that obstacle course, basically. So it was a 3D game with action elements and racing and all sorts of other stuff. You know, it wasn't a perfect game by any means, but it was fascinating. And, it, and I thought things actually did come together really well, you know, despite the complete sort of ridiculous mix of elements and i've never seen anything like it now i'm not saying we need to have you know um rock of ages 27 you know we don't need an annual installment but that sort of creative wacky you know sort of ethos rules over there there was a game they made uh last year or two years ago rather and then uh, re-released it recently called abyss odyssey which took elements of spelunky and fighting games and mixed it with like ancient or Chilean mythology. And so every character in this game was was a sort of mythical beast from some sort of Chilean um, myth, basically. <laughs> really, really cool, wacky, out there ideas, always. Uh, they made Xenoclash, which, you know, I, I didn't play a ton of Xenoclash, but I think that's actually most people's probably point of reference with Ace Team. Again, all sorts of wacky stuff happening, not always mechanically perfect by any means, but they're making these things that are just fun and interesting and weird. Um, and I, and I sort of love them for it. I, I will always play ace team games, even though I haven't played, you know, this week's game yet, but I will always play those games because I'm just fascinated by the way sort of their brains work and sort of the, the icons that they touch on and the things that they throw into their, really interesting stews are always fun to see. It's always fun to be surprised by what they make next. So that's just a team that I feel like critical consensus is never on their side. (laughs) I don't think any of their games have ever reviewed, you know, they're not the Metacritic 90 and above club, uh, but 
but I'd rather play a lot of those than than a lot of other games that would be in those sort of critical consensus, uh, darling sort of camps. So it's I, I don't know. I I I like you, Rob. I would always prefer a flawed but weird game <laughs> over yeah. the sort of polished AAA mega experience. Personally, for me, yeah, exactly. And I think the the, the sort of checkboxes issue is how you end up with with like truly like mediocre games like Arkham City uh yeah. ending up as like these universally renowned uh you know e- events <laughs> and you know that is a game where but you know like by the time I finished it I was like this game this this game is garbage uh it's a, it's a terrible <laughs> terrible follow up uh to and it was it was it was a depressing follow up to um Arkham Asylum because it felt like it has been so specifically tailored uh, to to checking various boxes, right? It was like, yeah. well, here we're going to offer you a little more on this menu and a little more on this menu, and just by the law of addition, uh, everyone's going to be obligated to acknowledge how much bigger and better an experience this is uh, than the sort of tighter focused uh, experience that you had in in the original game. But yeah, I, I think the weird like. Weird games are not treated kindly by critics uh, yeah. because they're going to be divisive. There's going to be people who get it, and there's going to be people who don't. I think Tharsis is a perfect example. Sure. Um, <laughs> I think I think a lot of I, – I don't think I'm going to be unusual among reviewers in deciding I really didn't like that game. Uh, I also don't think people who are saying it's brilliant are necessarily wrong. Uh, all I can tell you is that my takeaway from it was this was kind of a miserable experience and I, I couldn't actually in good conscience uh, recommend it to anyone. And actually that's, that's something else that uh, I, I've sort of, I, I sort of have to struggle with at times too. Um, my editor at IGN, I've been, probably I've been working with this, with, with this editor for longer than anyone, uh, Dan Stapleton. Mm-hmm. Um, he would start, he would always catch me in reviews starting to talk myself into giving games better reviews than than i than i really felt uh than i like sure. sort of going against my convictions because i could imagine a player who would like this kind of stuff uh yeah. and he, he would sort of be like well yeah you can you can always imagine someone who would who would like this game uh and certainly those people exist the the, the question is how did you actually feel and i i think with tharsis that was definitely a game where toward the end of my process with it as i started to like understand how it worked I could feel myself saying like, oh yeah, but like someone who really like likes to analyze odds and outcomes and, and really wants to dig into the nuances of exactly how the system is put together. It is an intricate system. Maybe it is really good. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I should respect that person's opinion that I've just constructed in my head and completely ignore the fact that I've been kind of pissed off every time I played this game. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's something else that, that sometimes comes into play a little bit is there's this, there's this desire to satisfy imaginary audiences, uh, to an extent. Yes. And the imaginary video game audience that we all have in our head and, or the sort of alternate reality version of ourselves that loves this kind of game or, or loves this aesthetic or, or just gets so damn genre. excited. Yeah. Yeah. So damn excited because they're a fan of the genre. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That definitely made my cliches list of no one is ever allowed to use this in a, in a Zam review for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. There's part of us where we psych ourselves out as reviewers and then nobody wins, right? Because we weren't honest with our own audience and we weren't honest with ourselves if we if we let that happen. And that's something when I when I was first doing this that I think happened hopefully more than it happens now, uh, you know, where, where I was just, you know, I, I, like I was saying earlier, maybe I, I felt something was mediocre, but I, uh, it seemed competent. So there we go. <laughs> you know, it, give it a, give it a fair shake. Um, it, it gets, yeah, it gets, it gets tough, but I, more and more, and I'm happy to see more and more of this in-game criticism is people being honest and being personal. Uh, sort of in their reviewing and in their writing. A, a review is an opinion piece. It, it should be your opinions and it should be you supporting those opinions with with everything else you're writing. Um, I'm happy to see more of this from from a lot of sites and even, even bigger sites. It feels to me, you know, this is a very subjective thing, but it feels to me like people are getting a little more comfortable with that. Um, maybe that, that sort of fake website that was objective video game reviews.com, uh, helped a little bit with that, you know, where basically the thrust was you put in the disc, the disc, uh, boots God, up the game, website. you know, uh, press a, and the character jumps, you know, that was, that was brilliant commitment pretty good. to a joke. Cause they were actually, they were actually well-written reviews yeah. for the fact they didn't actually say anything. Uh, it was, yeah. it, it was kind of magnificent, but I will tell you, I remember, um, a friend of mine uh, who used to do a lot more freelancing than he does now um, told me a story about uh, a really well-regarded editor uh, at, at a website. Uh, this is ages ago. Uh, and the story he told me is once that website rolled out uh, user reviews, so uh, user aggregate reviews, uh, and but before they'd become weaponized, um, <laughs> sure. when people were yeah. actually clicking like the number <laughs> they felt the game they deserved, uh, he would sometimes get an, a, a, an email from this editor congratulating him when his review tracked really closely with that user aggregate. It's like, hey, you did a really great job on blank. Uh, you gave it a eight point seven, and it's tracking at a eight point six with the uh, with the users. So you were you were right on the money. Um, yeah. <laughs> which my my buddy related to me is the story, which was kind of the moment he realized he had no idea what the hell was going on yeah. in uh, in games writing anymore. <laughs> but I thought it was kind of an amazing story because you know even people who 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 should have known better, um, you know, kind of had this desire to to get it right for the audience yeah. yeah, um, and sort of push writers to, I guess, write to those audience expectations, uh, which is, which is a really uh, hard thing to do. Um, yeah. And a very limiting thing to do as well, because you will never get, you know, when it comes to writing stuff like this, God, honesty, you just really need to be honest and sometimes brutally. So, and if not, you're kind of screwing over your actual audience, the audience who actually want to read your words and your writing, basically. I, I, I totally feel bad for like people I've probably steered toward decent but not totally memorable games. Yeah. Uh, you know, because well, it was it was a good it was it was a good low eighties uh, score I gave it. Uh, mm -hmm. It was it was a perfectly fine uh, you know bit of genre work. So by all means, you should you should get it, uh, <laughs> even if I can't with a gun to my head recall it. You know, six yes. months later. But I think. Oh yeah, I played that right. <laughs> but but I think it gets even harder when you start to talk about like major releases yeah. uh, these days as well because I think a it's really hard to not get caught up in hype yourself 
uh, because yes. a lot of us got into this because we're fans. And like, there's a lot of games that come up where you're just not really going to be able to maintain that objectivity. Maybe you shouldn't even have to, but it, it, you, you start to, you start to conclude before you ever see the game that it will probably be awesome. Uh, and yep. more than that, <laughs> users absolutely like, like readers in a lot of cases, or at least a vocal minority of readers will also really want to hear how awesome that game is. And that can be challenging. <laughs> it, can be, it can be challenging. Like it doesn't, I don't think it affects like how I approach certain reviews, but it's mm -hmm. definitely something you sort of have to suck it up for right where you're like oh man like because you, you know what you're going to get into the moment you you ding this game right um and i i do wonder if, if that sort of exerts a a psychological toll on uh the people who review a lot of these you know hotly anticipated game games i'm a freelancer so i don't get the hotly anticipated <laughs> games uh editors usually grab those uh but yeah. i do think maybe that contributes to the fact that you know a month or so after a game comes out and suddenly people who didn't opt into that first wave, you know what I mean? Like people who didn't want to be there on launch day and, and, and get this experience when other people, when more people start to experience it, you start having this really aggressive backlash as people start to realize that not only does the game not live up to those early reviews, but in some ways those early reviews start to make you angry, right? This game doesn't deserve this <laughs> reputation. And suddenly that, that game uh, has gone from being one of the year's best to, you know, a bunch of story, a bunch of articles coming out saying, well, let me tell you why that thing you liked was actually crap. I, I feel like the, the best test case of this in the last few years, and I, I don't know if it was entirely deserved, um, was probably Bioshock Infinite uh, in terms of, you know, that game got perfect scores, not across the board, but at a lot of big publications. And in the months that followed, it was it was a lot of negativity that, again, I, I could see a lot of that negativity uh, myself personally. But but it was it was a massive, massive backlash that I don't know if I've ever seen anything as extreme a whiplash uh, from the, you know, critical consensus to the, you know, sort of folks who are playing the game in the wider world that, that I don't know if I've ever seen anything that extreme yet <laughs> or before that, honestly, uh, very, very, very intense on that one. And I, God, that itself, that's the sort of whiplash effect between this, the sort of euphoria of launch. And, and frankly, you know, the process of reviewing these games is not, uh, it's not a normal way to play a video no. game. Not at all. So, so there are ways in which I, I don't think any, there's anything, uh, you know, untoward going on here at all. It's just, you know, you spend 72 hours or, or whatever, not 72 in all cases, obviously, but let's just say 30 to just put a number out there. You spend 30 hours sometimes in a row without sleeping just to finish this game. And then you spend, you know, a, a couple of hours writing the review back and forth with the editor, that sort of thing. It's this rush, this intense, completely all-encompassing sort of rush to do this thing where you know you're not you're not really living your life <laughs> for that period of time. You are living this game for that period of time uh, in a way that I can honestly potentially be limiting. It, it can be limiting in towards a, your actual emotional experience with a game and an actual like 
how do you really feel about this if there has yeah. been nothing else in your life for the, the last three days? You have maybe taken a break to eat and sleep for four hours and then kind of went right back into it. And I'm not saying that to sort of say, oh, poor video game reviewers. I'm just saying, like, that process does not it lend distorts. itself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It sort of distorts your perception of what a, this game actually is and how it actually affects you on a, on sort of every mental level, basically. Yeah, and I think for me in those cases, actually, a lot of times those really intense review experiences, I think, skew me to be more negative yeah. uh, than positive because it's like... Okay, so it, it's like a relationship, right? Yeah, Where, like, totally. Your partner has flaws. <laughs> your partner has things that uh, maybe you don't like. Maybe there's ticks. Maybe there's little quirks that, like... If you had to deal with them 24-7, you would lose your mind. Yes. <laughs> but fortunately, you each have your own lives, and so you get to see each other, and it's great because you, 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 had, a per- you had a period of time each day where you did not, in fact, see each other, and you were doing other things you know, privately. And now you come together, and those ticks are, are totally bearable, and you can focus on the things you enjoy. The intense review experience is the equivalent of someone sealing and sealing you inside your house yes. uh, with your partner for for like you know. There's no door on the bathroom. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and I think usually for me that ends up turning me slowly a little more hostile to a game because like fun things sort of pale a little bit like you know yeah. you, you get used to them but man do do minor irritations become like <laughs> massive injustices uh over the course of that process totally totally i completely understand that do you do you feel like you may maybe have had a little bit of this with tharsis possibly or is tharsis just rubbing you the wrong way with with a more normal sort of review oh deadline man. so I mean, that's an interesting question, uh, because it was definitely sort of a, it was sort of a quick fuse, uh, review assignment. Yeah. Uh, you know, came in on a Friday and the review was up by, by I think end of day Tuesday. Um, it is difficult for me to assess that. Sure. Yeah. And I, I think on the one hand, I find it kind of interesting that sometimes like, today I've been like, I could totally go for a game of Tharsis. I could totally (laughs) Totally. try that. Uh, but the process of running, you know, five, six games in a row in a session was absolutely awful um, sure. and, and and made me not want to play anymore. So that, that probably did distort it a little bit. Uh, and it, it's tough for me to say how much uh, because ultimately I, I say I could sort of go for a game of Tharsis. I have not yet gone for a game of yeah, Tharsis. That's the proof. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I'll say it, this has affected me in... Uh, I guess a positive way at, at, at one point in my life uh, in that I wasn't reviewing a game that I think I would have disliked more if I had reviewed it in the way, you know, the sort of reviews boiler room. And that is, you know, my favorite game last year, Alien Isolation. Um, I don't think I would have liked it half as much if I, you know, I had to finish those 30 hours in a week. And, you know, I, I, I spent, you know, several weeks playing that game and it was awesome and it was great and I could take breaks, which I needed dearly because I was going to have, you know, a panic (laughs) attack while playing the game. If not, I I think I would have really dreaded uh, parts of that experience if I had to do it that way. So, yeah, it's it's kind of all part of a a continuum here. The last thing I'll say on the topic personally is that the critical consensus can be damaging in some really key ways as well. And I will speak uh, to a personal experience on that. 
Um, I reviewed a game called Dragon's Crown uh, summer a couple of years ago, and uh, I didn't love the game. I didn't actually think it was mechanically as wonderful as as everybody else. You know, the critical consensus said, but I also sort of pointed out uh, some of the game's, you know, pretty prominent sexism as well. And uh, not not so much in the sort of player characters, but in sort of the NPC characters. And man, did I get a lot of hate for that one. Uh, it's, it was sort of, I genuinely feel, especially um, with, with uh, some of the elements of the audience at times, that people might have an opinion about a game that, that feels like, oh, maybe something was sexist or racist or gross or just just something they didn't like for, for any reason and feel as if maybe they need to play it down a little bit um, in terms of, hey, I don't really feel like getting death threats today. Uh, it was fine. It was it was okay. I didn't really care about the bikinis, you know, that sort of thing. I, I feel that that is, you know, I won't... Uh, I personally try to be honest about those things, but I know some folks are, are more wary about that. And I, and I think that has become something that is an issue as well in terms of how everybody is sort of viewing a particular game. Yeah, I've gone through uh, stuff that is, I, you know, a, a tenth that intense. Uh, and even that is is pretty obnoxious and it, it it exerts sort of not necessarily a psychological toll but it's something you start discounting in advance you're like yep, okay if, yeah. I, if i say this here's what i'm letting myself in for and you don't want to do it uh i, I will say where I've, where I've ended up with this just because i've been thinking about this a lot since the end of last year and i sort of thought about the experiences i valued um in addition to the, uh, you know, don't be, don't, don't be a piece of shit shirt, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the don't be a piece of shit wristband that we're all wearing yeah. now. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I sort of am trying to, I'm sort of contemplating a what would Tom Chick do, uh, nice. tattoo as well. Cause he's someone <laughs> I, I really admire for, you know, you can disagree with his opinion, with his views on a game, but they're always sincerely held. He, he gets yes. passionate about the games he plays and he doesn't do, a lot of middle of the road reactions. He's he's intense. He's intense in his passions, and it's why I I value him so so highly uh, as a critic and 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 a, and a colleague. Um, and I and I think increasingly I'm trying to get away from. I think a pattern that sort of became the default in the last few years, which was looking for those check boxes and maybe letting my reviews be steered toward the middle of the road, uh, yeah. and, and maybe trying to have reviews that are a little bit closer to representative of how I actually felt and not how I thought I should feel about a yeah. game. I think that's a very good attitude to have. That that feels like a good place to to end that particular discussion. Idle Weekend is sponsored by Audible, a source for fine audiobooks. There are hundreds of thousands of selections on there, including our own picks. Uh, mine this week is a very cool mystery by Frank Tallis called A Death in Vienna. Uh, it's a part of a really good series uh, about a psychoanalyst in turn-of-the-century Vienna, and it covers a lot of the exciting uh, philosophical and, and psychological breakthroughs uh, that were happening in the city at the time. They're, they're very cozy, uh, atmospheric mysteries with a, a kind of curious preoccupation with 
<laughs> with Austrian pastry dishes. Uh, so they, they are maybe a little difficult to read uh, if you're trying to uh, get away from sweets uh, following the holiday seasons. But nonetheless, uh, Frank Tellis at Death in Vienna is a terrific book and, and mystery and one I highly recommend. Uh, you can get a 30-day trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash idleweekend as well as a Death in Vienna or any book of your choosing to keep. Uh, so once again, that's audibletrial.com slash idleweekend. Uh, this comes from Saul Alexander. Okay, sounds great. Your best of 2015 podcast inspired me to finally play Soma, which has been sitting in my Steam list since Danielle first recommended it on that other podcast. <laughs> uh, I found it absolutely terrifying at first and almost gave up early on, but I soldiered on and eventually it became less scary. The trigger for this change was interesting. I died. Suddenly the unknown was known, the worst had happened, and although I knew that more and different terrors lurked out there, they couldn't do any worse than it already happened to me. Death in Games is weird. On the one hand, the ability to live again allows us to do dangerous, adventurous things that we would never dare in real life, but on the other it kind of cheapens the greatest, most impenetrable mystery of life. The stakes are lowered, and surely, as a consequence, any achievement is also lessened. Thankfully, Soma compensates for its death-induced diminishing returns of terror by becoming more and more philosophically and narratively interesting. In what other games does death have an interesting or unusual impact? First thing I thought of when I was thinking about this, uh, Soma is a good example because of sort of what happens when you die and that's the whole nature of, of Simon, the sort of main character as a person and, and you know, what constitutes personhood in that game. I think the swapper is also a really good uh, example of a game in which you, you, you're sort of killing your copies uh, to, to sort of get further on in the game and get further on in the game. And, you know, it's a puzzle game and I, there's, there's sort of a really wonderful melancholy tone to that game as well. And sort of that, that philosophical idea of what happens when you, when you kill your copy. Uh, are you killing yourself? You know, are you are you doing this? So again, it's it's sort of in keeping with Soma, but also uh, with that the philosophical meat. I think is what keeps it from being sort of just an, another cheap uh, sort of way of, of of defining a mechanic. Yeah, I actually um I, I have trouble thinking of of games where where death has a has an interesting like impact from from a mechanical standpoint. I will say I completely get where where Saul's coming from with his experience of finally getting killed in a game. <laughs> uh, but it's a weird thing because absolutely the returns start to diminish. And you just brought up alien isolation a moment ago, but yeah, that is a case where up until the point where the alien starts becoming a real problem uh, for you, for me, this was up in the medical bay yeah. of, uh, of the game. Up until that point, that game had scared the, like, I had been just on a razor's edge with that entire game, uh, because it was the idea that this, this thing w was out there and occasionally I could see it and I'd avoid it. But in the medical bay, it started becoming like a real, like omnipresent adversary that, that I was just absolutely terrified of. And, um, that lasted a really long time. It was it was really exciting. It was it was agonizing, deliciously agonizing in the way the best <laughs> all the all the great scary games are. And then I got to a point where I just started I just started mishandling situations and I started dying and I started dying a lot. And at that point, 
really quickly, alien isolation stopped being quite as scary, and it became this annoying, like, list of tasks you had to execute, <laughs> while occasionally the, the xenomorph would run out of nowhere and make out with you with its weird second mouth, <laughs> and, and then the screen would go black again and again. So you're like, oh, I just want to open this elevator. Okay, the elevator's coming. And then you hear, like, the rush of footsteps, and you're like, oh, son of a bitch, and then cut to <laughs> yep. black. Uh, so yeah, th that's an interesting thing. Oftentimes, like, I think there's something amnesia did really, really well. Um, amnesia was about the threat of death, but yeah. oftentimes death was actually nowhere near as close as it felt. Yeah. That's a really good example as well. I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking about like, oh, yeah, how could you not be scared in alien isolation when it terrified me? Because I kind of sucked at it not. after a point. Like, <laughs> I was still, like, believe me, I, I was still dying a lot. Like, the alien was a formidable foe. I will totally sure. grant it that. But at a certain yeah. point, uh, I was just getting, you know, I was I was just chain dying out there. I, I'm, I'm also trying to think, what, what else was a good – well, okay, there's also the sort of um, – the first time you die in oh. Conquer's Bad Fur Day. I, I'll, I'll put this one out here as the fun example. There's this yeah. whole little... They sort of... Um, I always love when games, uh, even if it's very cheesy or very tongue-in-cheek as it was in Conquer, uh, I always love when games uh, sort of justify game mechanics, you know, very, very... Game, not game mechanics, but like really gamey features sort of in the narrative of the game. So when the first time you die in Conqueror's Bad Fur Day, you meet Greg, who is uh, sort of the Grim Reaper squirrel in mm -hmm. that game, who, you know, tells you that, oh, if you collect these tails, you get infinite lives, you know, that sort of thing. Like, you'll you'll keep getting lives as long as you get these things. It's it's weird. It's in my rule book, you know. And a nice little... Little way of, of of making fun of that whole thing, which of course, yeah, now in 2016, that's not the freshest thing. But in 2001, I thought that was hilarious. Uh, I think a couple things did just occur to me. I think Crusader Kings Two has to be mentioned here. Oh yeah, because that is a game that is literally about like inheritance, uh, and it has an interesting effect on on a couple levels because it really kind of makes you think about where your character was at when they died, right? And, and yeah. so there are times, there are times when I've absolutely, like, had a, a noble who's had, like, the quintessential, like, life well-lived. Um, and so for the last, like, couple years of his life, I'm just kind of waiting for the guy to pass on because I have a good heir, that things are going to be fine. The inheritance is secure. There's no, there's no nasty rivals, like, waiting in the wings. Um, Everyone in my family and my my advisors, they're all loyal and they're good friends. And so it's kind of this like really nice, like, oh, that was that was really good. You expanded the family holdings. You're a wise and just ruler. And now you go gently into that good night. And then there's other times when you have to let yourself like you 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 kind yeah. of let yourself die because <laughs> you're like, well, my son is plotting to kill me. But actually, he's got really good stats, and he'd be a way better ruler. <laughs> so even though I know he's plotting my death, I'm going to let it happen. Because, A, I'll become him. That's how the game works. You you sort of pass on to, to your heir. Uh, but also... You know, like, but you can also imagine your character sort of saying it as well, right? The, 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 the sort of, you know, gently... 
you know, sort of, sort of gently, uh, playing along with the, playing along with the charade, yeah. uh, you know, while your, while your conniving son, uh, <laughs> prepares your, you know, prepares your nighttime, your nighttime draft. Um, <laughs> yeah. and like, yes, I, I love you, father. And, and sort of just sort of rolling with it. Uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting experience in that game. Uh, and then of course there's, there's, there's games like Sunless Sea, uh, yes, which has yes. sort of the roguelike, uh, you know, trope of, you die and your story's at an end, but you've learned so much and you go back out and you do it all over again, but everything's a little bit different. Uh, and you have the choice of, of, of redoing things that you, that you may felt, you may have felt you chose poorly before. And now you have a chance to, to fix it in this, in this new life, which is, which is kind of interesting as well. So we have a, an email from Vlad from Mexico. Saying winter of 98 was an amazing gaming season for the 14-year-old me. Not only did my parents get me StarCraft Brood War, but the store clerk also talked them into buying some novel shooter I had never heard about called Half-Life. Once I saw the surface and soldiers, I thought I was approaching the end of the game. This wasn't meant to be. After being knocked out and left for dead, I somehow managed to escape and find my way to the surface yet again. It's then when an Apache gunship comes buzzing by and kills me. Repeatedly. I must have died more than 70 times at this dam. It's then when I have an idea that forms one of my best gaming experiences. Maybe you can't shoot it down. Maybe you're meant to hide from it. One of the most satisfying game moments of my life was when I finally made it to the part where you get an RPG launcher and are able to shoot down the asshole that had made my life a living hell for days. On to my actual question now. Have you ever made a decision in a game that made it a lot harder than it was meant to be, resulting in a much better experience than intended? Well, Vlad, I had an experience a little bit like this, and it's with a game I've talked about before on this show, a little game on the Nintendo 64 called Shadows of the Empire, Star Wars Shadows of the Empire. Uh, when I was a, a wee lass, you know, whatever I was, 12 or 13 when I played that game, I the first time I played through it, I couldn't figure out that in the Hoth level that you could actually make the uh, the ships circle around the AT-ATs to uh, you know trip them up. So I brought down every one of those things with my little laser beam and the little my crappy little Hoth ship. So I, it took me like an hour and a half on you know normal or hard difficulty, whatever I played it on, uh, to just one percent damage every time on every one of those AT-ATs. It was it was oh, a real man. battle. It was a real challenge. Um, yeah, I just couldn't figure out that the uh, the controls were inverted when the camera changed to make you circle around. That was hey, it made it more of a battle. So I suppose it was a, a more realistic Hoth uh, <laughs> experience there. Um, yeah, for me, and it's actually interesting hearing the story about Half Life because I can't actually remember now. My memories of that of that level, I think, have sort of been contaminated by everyone else's. Like, I have this vague memory of also trying to shoot down the helicopter before I could. But reading this letter, I was kind of thinking, well, no, duh, of course you can't shoot down the helicopter. You just you just run away from it, and then you find the rocket launcher, and that's when you know you can kill the helicopter. Um, and so it's kind of interesting that this this sort of seminal moment, I now no longer really trust my own recollection of it, because uh, I think it's sort of been changed by the fact that people cite it so often uh, as an example of, of, of level design. Uh, as far as making things harder uh, than intended and, and things turning out kind of cool. So the original company, uh, not Company of Heroes, uh, the, the original Call of Duty, 
Hmm. There's this one uh, level in during the Russian part of the campaign where uh, it's it's called Pavlov's house, uh, and it's this like four or five story apartment building that is filled with just filled with Nazis, and you got to go in, you got to get those Nazis out of there, and then you got to defend it from more Nazis. <laughs> And the thing is, I got it in my head. I was like, okay, well, how would I do this if if I were um if if I were if I were actually in this situation? Uh and I like everyone's formed up for a charge at the front door and there's a machine gun nest there and I'm like, "No, that that's that's crazy. That's no, I can do that. That's for the birds." What I'm going to do is I'm going to sneak around the side of the house, go back, and there's a basement. Uh and I'm going to come in through the basement and clear this place out. And the nice. game let me do this. <laughs> and it would just get harder. Like, I could clear the basement, but then I then nobody came to help me. So I was basically trying to solo this entire apartment building, uh, which is this warren of, of rooms and, and hallways and holes and ceilings and floors. And it was just this really intense, brutal, close quarters battle. It took me an unbelievable number of tries <laughs> to clear that building. And then it's cleared, the Germans show up, and I start defending it, and I get killed. I'm like, okay, it'll start that. It'll start from where we started defending it. Nope, kicked me all the way back to the start of the the, the first encounter. I was oh, like, damn, man. this is really hard. This must be the end of the campaign or something. It's, it's really <laughs> tricky. And I did it again, just unthinking. I like took the same approach, room by room. By the time I beat that level... It must have taken me 50 or 60 tries to get through the entire encounter. <laughs> oh my God. Just an unbelievable. But the thing is, it was, yeah, it was frustrating as hell. But also, <laughs> in, 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 I, I mean this in the context of other shooters, but like, I've never felt so alive <laughs> because every single, like, every single move was, was considered, right? It was, it was yeah. sort of my, my, my World War II Dark Souls. Uh, what gun <laughs> am I taking into this next room? Uh, where's that guy going to be? And I felt like such a badass clearing this place out because I, I started getting really good at just killing these Nazis without like a second thought. Um, anyway. That's when I finally good. beat yeah. the level, I uh, go on with the rest of the campaign, and I'm like, damn, that was a weird difficulty spike, whatever. It wasn't actually until <laughs> I replayed it a long time later that I realized if I'd just gone straight at the front door, uh, everyone would have charged in behind me, and the scripted events would have triggered, and we would have taken the house very easily, autosave would have happened two or three times, and then the hard part of the level was actually defense at the end. And uh, there would have been more autosaves uh, <laughs> along the way there. But because I took this way that nobody really thought a player would at Infinity Ward, uh, I ended up having a near impossible experience where no autosaves were ever triggered. Wow. And uh, it was kind of cool. Like it was like I it was the hardest thing I ever did in a Call of Duty game. And it's also something later Call of Duty games would never even let you do, right? Like yeah, this yeah. was like later those games were so like concerned about you seeing everything the exact way they want you to see it. They they funneled you so hard uh that they no longer felt like really entertaining shooters for me uh in the single player campaigns. But this was 
this was like peak World War II tactical shooting action. Uh, and it, it was amazing uh, in, in, in all the wrong ways. Yeah, so it's basically the best Call of Duty experience ever that anybody's ever had. By inadvertently <laughs> completely breaking the scripting of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Man, that's awesome. So I think we're going to go on to our weekend projects at this point. Rob, been playing or watching or listening or reading or experiencing anything really cool lately? Um, yeah, so I actually just reviewed uh, Homeworld Deserts of Karak for PC Gamer, and uh, I really, really liked it. Uh, and sort of apropos of our earlier discussion, I ended up giving it a, a really positive score and a really positive review. And it was... It is difficult for me at this at this point to separate it, to to be really objective about the game because it's going to take me a long time to sort of see past my sense of relief and gratitude that there's a new homeworld uh, out there. <laughs> this is you know this is a series. The original the original homeworld I think came out in like two thousand two thousand one. Oh wow! And was like the first real time strategy game from Relic. Uh, and it was, there, there really wasn't anything like it before, and there wasn't anything like it after, uh, except maybe, uh, Flotilla, uh, by Blendo Games. But Homeworld was this almost like Battlestar Galactica, the game, uh, where nice. you control okay. this, this mothership, uh, that's fleeing from this ruined world. And you're being hunted by these mysterious enemies uh, who are basically trying to exterminate you and your entire race. And it all takes place in a 3D, um, a 3D map. So ships, you know, they, 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 they go high, they go low. Tons of movement along the Z axis. Uh, but the, the other, the, the other cool things were that the campaign was persistent. So, what you lost in one mission, you kind of lost for the duration of the campaign. Like those resources were gone. Uh, so you really wanted to play as efficiently as possible. So you'd have enough resources to, to build good stuff later on and replenish your losses, uh, after hard battles. Um, and then Homeworld was just kind of a gorgeous game. It had this really sparse, desolate beauty. Uh, it was an incredibly like sort of sad and lonely and wistful, uh, RTS. Um, and, they kind of vanished. Like the last one they made was, was Homeworld two in 2003. Huh. And then that series just kind of vanished and nobody supported it afterwards. Uh, so even if you get a legit copy, there was a whole rigmarole you had to go through, uh, to get it to work on modern machines that all changed last year when gearbox, uh, released remastered editions of, of those games, which was very cool and very exciting. But then I was super skeptical of this new game, Homeworld Deserts of Karak, because, yeah, it was called Homeworld, but it was a homeworld where you weren't in space. You'd be you were on a desert planet, and you were controlling tanks, and you were controlling this, this big carrier on treads uh, that was sort of wandering around this desert. And I was like, this is going to be, this is going to be sacrilege. This is going to be, how could you take <laughs> Homeworld, a, a game about like being chased through the stars and turn it into, you know, a command and conquer style game. And that's not what they did. Uh, they actually made an incredibly good Homeworld game. Uh, and that new setting turned out to be perfectly adapted, perfectly adapted, uh, to all the things I'd loved about the original, original Homeworld games. And so, you know, I was sort of sitting there and I was like, 
I was sort of starting talking. I was trying to talk myself into maybe not being as positive about the game. Like Rob, <laughs> you're 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 not you're not being cold. You're not being rational about this. You're 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 too emotionally invested. Blah blah blah. But then I sort of hit this point where it's like, yeah, but at this point, I would just sort of have to be lying. Like, I would just sort of be saying, well, I'm going to deduct, uh, I'm going to deduct some points from a score, uh, just because I'm not sure I, I, I trust myself or whatever. The truth was, I just, I, I loved this game. I loved the campaign. I, I had a ton of fun with the multiplayer. Um, it, it is such a good, uh, new edition of the series uh and and it actually feels contiguous with the with the other games like you know the series always had the sort of ghostly eerie radio chatter sort of murmuring in the background you'd hear you'd hear people like getting wiped out and engaged in like struggles for their lives and it was all just this really dry murmured radio chatter uh in the background and you could hear units go off the air as, as casualties uh came in and it was it was super spooky uh, but it was also really cool, and all of that's present in this new game. Uh, so, it, you know, for me, it, it just turned into this, A, it's a really good real-time strategy game, and then B, it manages to do justice to one of the truly great real-time strategy series uh, that we've ever had, and hopefully marks the start of, of something really new, ex- new and exciting. Uh, but, but yeah, this was definitely a case where I was like, yeah, I could imagine someone who'd have problems with certain things that I, that I noticed <laughs> in that game, but I wasn't that person. I was somebody <laughs> who was just, who was just ecstatic basically every time I was playing that game. Uh, and so I, I highly recommend, uh, to anyone who had any sort of affection for the Homeworld games, uh, it's back. It's good. Uh, I think it's what a lot of us wanted all these years. Nice. See, that sounds like you just need to be your own critical consensus on this. Maybe we need to make a new wristbands. You know, what would your own critical consensus do? I don't know. We should we should start getting just <laughs> idle weekend tattoos and make yeah, some truly it. regrettable decisions based on like crummy catchphrases. <laughs> I think it's perfect. Yeah. Honey, who's Tom Check? <laughs> I have been um I've been playing a game I enjoy quite a bit that I um, you know, just we'll briefly mention this is, you know, a super briefly. Um, I'm playing a lot of Mario and Luigi Paper Jam lately. It's a 3DS game. It's a, you know, sort of the next in the series of the, the series that Mario RPG started on the Super NES and then the Mario and Luigi series on sort of on portables typically. And, you know, I think there was a GameCube entry in it and a Wii entry in it. Uh, just a really awesome little action RPG. You're, you're sort of starring Mario and Luigi and Paper Mario this time. Um, you know, the writing is really good and funny and breezy and sort of, you know, you're doing battles, you're doing the, the sort of usual action RPG thing, but all your attacks are timed uh, with button presses. And uh, there's there's a lot of, of stuff going on in this one. There are these sort of paper craft arena battles that you're doing uh, at different times. But but at its core, just a really fun, imaginative little uh, action RPG. I always enjoyed these games. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of platforming, a little bit of action, a little bit of sort of all these other things. I, I suppose I like these games that have a lot of little bits in the stew, basically. Uh, but yeah, I'll just mention that quickly. I'm, I'm actually writing the review of it. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm still sort of collecting all my my critical thoughts on it, uh, but but yeah, I just wanted to mention it's a really cool little game. So if, th- if that uh, is an itch that you have, little action RPG with uh, Mario and Luigi, that it will scratch it very satisfactorily. 
I am also uh, sort of obsessively watching The Good Wife right now. I don't even know. How far are you? I'm only in the first season. I'm at the very end of the first season. So I'm I'm new to this, uh, to this obsession. But my God, I had no idea it was so good. I remember actually friend of the show, producer of the show, in fact, Chris Remo, told me once upon a time was was talking about how good this show was and I, I was sort of like okay cool you know put it in on my list somewhere in the back of my mind and as with so many things that I end up watching these days my girlfriend was just watching it one day and you know we were making dinner and she's like oh I heard it was good so I put it on and here we are you know watching it at three in the morning obsessively uh you know it's a show if you're if you're unfamiliar it's a show about a woman who uh, she's a lawyer and uh, she was married to a very uh, powerful, uh, I think he was a DA yep. in uh, Chicago. Yeah. A DA in Chicago who went through a whole sex scandal. So she was kind of, you know, dragged through the mud on all of this. He's in jail. And she decides to like, to be like, you know what? I was the, you know, quote unquote, good wife for so long. I, I you know, took care of the kids and I did all the, all of this stuff. I'm going to go back to, to, you know, my love of being a lawyer and, and, and she works at this law firm and, and sort of goes on all these interesting cases. And of course she's, she's a brilliant lawyer, uh, kind of a natural in court and just a very intelligent woman, uh, you know, great analysis and, and very observant and so on and so forth. It's just a show with a lot of, of cool things going on. It has a lot of cool things to say about gender and sort of, you know, working women and, and, and the legal system and, and and of course, there's this this whole layer of 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 sort of scandalousness going oh on God, as well yeah. with the husband and and all this other stuff. So they're they're it's working on a lot of levels. Like it's a it's a really well written, intelligent show that also has you know sort of this injection of just enough you know trashy melodrama to keep things you know keep you really just chewing on the popcorn when you're they tired. Do the, they do the ripped from the headlines <laughs> thing from time oh, to time, but totally. also it's a really good courtroom <laughs> procedural. It is uh, that, that yes. kind of ruined me for a lot of others. Like one thing sure. I could get over with um how to get away with murder which is a series i sort of got into mm-hmm. is the fact that nothing they do remotely resembles like the law yes um and what's really cool is that like there's this entire universe in the good wife of judges and other lawyers yeah uh, and so it becomes like you get really invested in this workplace and you start to like really feel like part like a, you're you're yeah. sort of the you're the 12th man of the defense team because totally. you're like oh crap we got the really we got the hippy dippy judge uh <laughs> and you know what you're in for when you see this judge uh you know what you're in in for when you see the really like persnickety asshole judge uh yeah. and it's it's so much fun those first those early seasons deliver uh, on so much i love uh something i really connected with in that first season is how brittle her confidence is at the start Yes, yes. Uh because she's she hasn't done this and she's older and everybody like she there's she's actually sort of pitted against a young uh hotshot lawyer who's who you know competing for the same associate's position. But then there's also the fact that like she's good at this, but you she she has to sort of wrestle with that imposter syndrome uh in in some of the yes. earlier episodes and sort of fight to maintain that that confidence. And that's a really Really cool struggle that you don't see a lot of characters on any show uh, go through because so many shows are, are littered with with characters who are practically superheroes. Uh, yeah. It's cool to see someone who's gifted, but not super magic gifted. They're gifted in the way normal people are, and, and they, have to, yeah. they have to fight for that confidence. It feels very real, and it feels very powerful. And I will say, also, I'm I'm enjoying it so so much. Um, like you said, for the for the sort of courtroom drama. 
that's I mean, certainly it's dramatized and certainly it's, you know, you know, condensed into hour long episodes. But that's what court looks like. You know, when I was at the ACLU, I went to court often and uh, the character Diane, who's sort of the older woman, one of the partners at the firm, reminds me so, so much of uh, my executive director, actually, at the Boston office of the ACLU. It's really, really something special to kind of be like, yeah, that's right. You go, Diane, even though she you know, does uh, feel competitive with uh, the main character a little bit uh, at, at certain points, or, or, or there's some tension there, at least, uh, which is a thing that does happen. Well, and, and people <laughs> have complicated relationships, exactly. relationships exactly. on the show. Like, yeah, yeah the, the thing with um, Diane, uh, who's played by Christine Bransky, uh, who, who's just tremendous in that role. Oh, yes. Um, yes. Yeah, n- actually, all her relationships with her coworkers take on a ton of dimensions. Like, Carrie, the hotshot lawyer, is kind of a little prick, but actually, he's a decent guy, too. And those two things, like, the the fact he's kind of a cocky jerk doesn't go away. Yeah. It just becomes a thing you have to sort of take with uh, – take alongside the fact that he's actually a, a better person than he seems. Diane is a difficult person to work with, but also in some ways a, an amazing boss. Yeah. Um, uh, but, yeah, I, I, I love that series. There's so many – it, it hits on absolutely every cylinder. Every single actor just brings their A game. Every character is perfectly realized. Uh, God, I love it. It's, it's available free on uh, Netflix, on uh, Amazon. Amazon, Prime, right? that's right. That's how we're watching it. Maybe, maybe that was a new thing, and that's why my girlfriend started watching it. it would, however, this happened. I'm happy about it because it's great. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So I think uh, with that, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. Once again, Idle Weekend is sponsored by Audible, a source for fine audiobooks. You can get a 30-day trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash idleweekend, as well as a book of your choosing to keep. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash idleweekend. So if you are listening to this show and you're enjoying it, please, please, please do tell a friend, tweet about it, you know, go on the top of a hill and scream about it, shout about it, sing about it. However you want to get the word out, it would be amazing, and we appreciate it so much. And if you could rate us on iTunes, that would be just the coolest thing, and we would also appreciate that so, so much. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net. Send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at idleweekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of idle weekends. Cool. Yay.